This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interviews you're about to hear are with Ben Eltham. He joined me to talk about federal politics. Then photographer Claire Ray and photographic archivist Gareth Sivray joined me to talk about the exhibition Entre Nous, Claude Cahoon and Claire Ray, which is showing at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy. And finally, I spoke to the troupe of Spontaneous Broadway, John Thorne, who was on the piano, Russell Fletcher, who was the MC, and actors Sally Bourne and Gillian Cosgriff came into the studio to perform musical acts that were entirely spontaneous and very entertaining. They're currently showing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Yes, this is 3RRFM in Melbourne, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense. I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me now to discuss federal politics. Hi, Ben. Good morning. How are you, Amy? Morning. I'm good, good. It's uh, a bright, sunny-ish, not really, Tuesday morning. A little bit overcast, I yeah, think. Yeah, very since. Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all relative, isn't it? Um, Now, Ben, there's much to discuss about um, federal politics, as there usually is. Uh, I know that uh, last week, uh, Parliament basically finished sitting um, before the May budget. So we have a bit of a break in terms of Parliament actually being alive, uh, so to speak. But that won't stop the politics from happening, I'm sure, uh, in the lead up to the May budget. And as we know, um, there'll be some staged, careful, uh, planned leaks of information that will give us an idea of what's happening. But one of the cornerstone pieces of uh, the previous budget has been the company tax cuts uh, that have been obviously staged and uh, have needed to be in order to for them to have been passed in the first place. But because they're staged, it means that uh, at each point we need to pass the next round. And we've reached a bit of a blockade, Ben. And last week we were discussing this and thought perhaps they might actually be passed, but that seems like it's all dead in the water. Yeah, that's right. Government didn't get their company tax cuts through the Senate and I think um, quite a significant defeat for the coalition government of Malcolm Turnbull there. Um, as you as you rightly point out, they are staged company tax cuts. So around about half of the original $60 billion package has gone through and that was the tax cuts for smaller companies up to, I think it's up to $100 million. Um, So these were the tax cuts to the big guys, to the big corporations. And these were always a much tougher sell for the government for obvious reasons, because I think a lot of ordinary voters are rather sceptical of uh, the value of these tax cuts. Mm. Um, And indeed, a lot of economists uh, also pointed out that the economic benefit of these tax cuts would largely accrue to the owners of companies and the shareholders rather than to ordinary workers, let alone, you know, people out there in the community. Exactly. And, you know, it has been widely discussed, uh, the questionable impact of these tax cuts. Obviously, the greatest impact would be that the budget loses a substantial amount of revenue and it's much needed, as we've been hearing for a long time, the budget is uh, in deficit. We no longer have a budget emergency, quote unquote. But um, I mean, when we're talking about uh, these major revenue um, raising things like tax and corporate tax, um, why on earth would the government seek to do this? Just like, have, let's have a quick recap. 
Right. Well, why was why is the government trying to cut company tax? Uh, largely for political reasons, I think, because uh, its its base, its support base, uh, is very much about corporate Australia, um, the interests of private capital, and the Liberal Party has kind of always stood for that since it was founded by Robert Menzies in 1944. So, uh, you know, this is very much a, a kind of core Liberal Party principle here about returning uh, taxation you know, um, back to uh, the interests of capital. Um, having said that, you know, if we if we sort of step back from that a little bit, you know, how has the government proceeded in trying to sell these company tax cuts? I think the really interesting thing for me about the company tax cut debate is that the government's lost that debate mm. pretty comprehensively. Um, it hasn't been able to mobilise any of the, you know, big battalions, if you like, in favour of, of these measures. Yes, the Business Council of Australia and some of the big corporations have advocated for it, but they've had very little support from either, you know, other core kind of Liberal Party interest groups or the general community, let alone, you know, your kind of technocratic class like policymakers, think tanks or economists, mm-hmm. most of whom have lined up against these company tax cuts. Now, this wouldn't necessarily matter um, because the government is doing other things and getting on with the job as it likes to say but I think it is a major defeat simply because it's been the centrepiece of its entire second term. Remember this was the main policy that Malcolm Turnbull took to the 2016 election so with this going down now, I mean the government says it's going to keep trying but um, with this sort of defeated now for the, the time being I think the government's got to regroup and it's got to come up with a new strategy going forward. Mm. And uh, and quickly, because the May budget is coming up and I, I believe, you know, that given that was such an important piece of that, I guess, messaging and strategy, they're going to need to find something else. Um, I just want to go into a little bit of the key players in this debate. Um, some of the more minor but have turned into be turned out to be key players have been uh, Darren Hinch, who um, you know was obviously doing a deal with uh, the Liberals, the Coalition, on that particular bill, and they thought that that uh, would have seen it all go through. But then we have a bit of a dark horse here, which is uh, Senator Stora, who is uh, or was previously part of the Nick Xenophon team, has since defected and is now an independent. Can you tell us about uh, this this man, Senator Stora? Well, we don't know a lot about him. Um, as you as you say, he was a Xenophon senator. He actually replaced Skye Koshki Moore, I believe, after she ran into citizenship problems of Section Forty Four last year. She had to resign, and he was the next nomination from the Xenophon team. Then he went rogue. Uh, he resigned, as uh, minor party senators are wont to do, <laughs> and um, declared himself an independent. And then promptly decided to. Uh, take a close look at the company tax cuts legislation and came up with his own thoughts on it. Basically, he had a, he had a look at it, he had a look at the economics and he decided that it didn't stack up. Um, and that's the reason that he's given for not voting for it. Now, that's turned out to be the crucial swing vote in defeating the legislation because the government had lined up quite a few of the crossbenchers and it was looking pretty good there for Matthias Cormann for a little while. And so Senator Stora's decision there to, to go against the company tax cuts has turned out to be crucial. Exactly. And it is really interesting to say, perhaps it's depressing that uh, this is quite novel, that he was uh, looking at the legislation on its merits 
and weighed up the evidence and decided that it perhaps wasn't uh, beneficial and didn't make a lot of sense. Whereas a lot of the other uh, senators who are part of minor parties or are individuals were really uh, engaging in kind of horse trading. That's right. Uh, One Nation, for example, cut a deal with the government in return for a few sort of of their favourite policies, a little bit of funding for various special interest groups up in Queensland. Um, But yeah, he decided to simply vote on the merits of the bill itself. And I think, uh, you know, we might be hearing a bit more of Senator Storer because he'll Mm. obviously have an important role in this Senate with the current makeup. There's hope for us yet, Ben. We could have some, you know, serious discussions about policy. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, after a year that's been marked by discussions of anything but policy, um, it's interesting to return to policy. And, you know, you have to say the government's policy position is pretty threadbare at the moment. They don't have a lot apart from these company tax cuts. So the looming budget, as you point out, will Mm. be really important. I think what the government will do now is bank some of these savings because... Um, one of the one of the things that helps them with this is they can they can say right okay well we couldn't get it through the Senate therefore we've got an extra twenty five billion dollars roughly to play with I think what they'll try and do is use some of those some of that money um, which is fictional money but you know yeah. bu- budgets always are um, and they're going to try and give it away in personal tax cuts and I think that would be the most politically advantageous way that they could respond. Mm. It will be really interesting to see and I'm sure it will become more and more clear as the days go on what will occur. Well, there's certainly been a few rumours that that's what the government would look to do and, and, you know, I think it makes sense for them. If they, you know, they don't want the budget returning to surplus too quickly because then Labor can start spending <laughs> that money with uh, election promises. They also want to be able to look after their own constituencies and we saw a bit of a signal of that on the weekend with some selective leaking about the government's plan to look after baby boomers, that uh, highly disadvantaged group within our community. Um, I shouldn't be too flippant. Of course, there are there are people there are. who are baby boomers who are doing it tough. But um, as a generation, that um, collectively they've done pretty well out of uh, Australia's economy over the last twenty five years. Mm. They're also core voting, a core voting block, obviously. And so for the Liberal Party, that's their base, and they badly need to make sure that those guys vote Liberal. Yeah, exactly. Well, they have obviously had greater opportunity to own a home, which is one of those key things uh, in terms of financial security and personal security. Yeah, and also if you look at things like the superannuation system, it's incredibly skewed towards older Australians. Um, There's things like... Particularly male working Australians. Yep. Um, anyone who's accrued a large amount of super is um, very, very tax advantaged mm. by the current system. Yeah. I mean, people who haven't accrued a lot of super, and that includes a lot of female baby boomers who've been out of the workforce. Um, they're not nearly as, you know, quite as, as healthy in a situation like that. So, I mean, you know, you, that's why we had that big debate about Labor's proposed cuts to dividend imputation credits. Mm. Um, and that, that debate will roll on, of course. The government still opposes that measure. Um, and, and, you know, we could see some other measures to, to try and sweeten the deal for, 
for baby boomers and pensioners and things like that. Of course, the problem is with the system so advantaged to those people already, it's hard to see how the government could make things any better for those guys. Um, so <laughs> Don't put it past them. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, we I'm can sure find the something. boffins in Treasury have been given um, a job to come up with some, you know, electoral sweeteners. I mean, back in the old days when Peter Costello had a lot of money, he used to just give people money. Like he used to yeah. announce a, a bonus at... at at budget time, give $500 to pensioners mm. or something like that. Or have a baby. Here's some money. Yeah, the, the baby bonus. Yeah, who yep. can forget that? Um, I mean, I don't think that will look after baby boomers so much because they're kind of out of child-rearing age these days. But, you know, maybe they could look at some kind of grandparents' mm. allowance or something <laughs> like that, you know? For all the caring they've well, that done. That could be pretty popular, yeah. I reckon, actually. <laughs> Very creative, Ben. I like it. <laughs> I think go, you're in see? the wrong job. Once we start brainstorming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the world is our oyster. Well, I think you'll be moving to Treasury not too soon. So uh, It seems unlikely with my no. current haircut. Yeah, That's true. You don't yeah. really fit in. Don't think they'd let me in the door. Yeah. No. It's a little bit unkempt. I've, yeah, I haven't, haven't put it up today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, yeah, I'm sure anyone can Google Ben Altham and see your fabulous locks, it's which not, are... not necessary, yeah. Curly-ish and... This is why we do radio. Yeah. yeah. Ben has the hair for radio. <laughs> nah. Um, now let's get on to private health insurance. That's also a bit of a topic of discussion because Labor, um, they seem to be kind of drip-feeding some of their ideas, which will obviously end up as part of their budget reply as well as their forthcoming election platform um, but they're seeking to I guess rein in private health insurance rebates um, they've said that premiums have been going up far too much uh, and that you know this is a huge hole or it creates a big dent in the budget um, what uh, what is what's labor trying to do there yeah, well, I think this is uh, part of a long-standing Labor strategy. They've never liked the private health insurance rebate. Um, what is it? The government pays you money for having private health insurance. So, um, for Because la- they want to obviously get people out of the public system and into the private system. Well, that's the justification and it's always been the kind of argument put forward by the private health sector. Mm. If you talk to the health economists, they'll tell you that's bunkum, Mm. that's just rubbish. It doesn't actually take any pressure off the public system. Um, All it does is channel money into the pockets of people who hold private health insurance policies. So it does make it easier for, say, middle-class Australians who want that you know, supposed security of having private health insurance. It it helps them out a little bit. Um, But I think, uh, you know, if we look at the cold hard economics, it's very expensive. So it's quite, I think it's something like six or $7 billion a year that the government pays out. Um, And most people would agree that that money if channeled into the public sector would go a lot further. Um, you know, it would fund directly the health system if you spend it on hospitals and doctors and public health and preventative health and things like that. Um, so it's never been liked by health policy experts. And I think Labor is starting to come around to to looking at that. And, and of course, it's a big wad of money. Mm. If Labor winds it back or means tests it more tightly, then that gives them money to spend on other aspects, you know, whether it be health funding or whether it be election promises of other types. Yes, and Labor did means test it when they were in government, so yep, they yep. already have that track record. Yep. Um, but uh, they they could poten- potentially tighten the rate of which we would uh, give people a rebate or means test it, as you said. Yeah, well, I'd like to see it abolished altogether myself. I mean, I just think it's a handout 
um, it's it's a very poor way of spending health dollars, uh, and I and I think the the way to support the health system is to spend money on the health system, you know, rather than to channel it, essentially sort of washing it really through the private health insurance sector, which of course is for profit. Twenty to thirty percent of those health policy dollars, they simply disappear into the pockets of shareholders um, and are paid out as profits to the stock market. And, and so I think Labor's on a, a pretty solid ground there by attacking these mm. private health insurers. It's unfortunate Bill Shorten has ruled out any um, plans to abolish it. You never know he could change his mind. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, that's a that's a big picture one. And, and mm. I think for a lot of Australians, they get very worried about not having private health because mm. of the propaganda that's been spewed out by the private health sector for years and years that, you know, you, you need that, that security blanket of, of private health insurance. But if you read your private health policy very closely, you'll find that it's riddled with loopholes mm-hmm. and it's actually very hard to get money back for many of the things that you pay money in for. So, look, I'm not saying that private health insurance is a rot particularly, but I, I think most people agree if they look at it that it's not particularly good value for money either. Yes, there are a lot of things it won't cover. Um, it's mainly, you know, a lot of those kind of planned surgeries or procedures that you can predict rather than should you suddenly get unwell, uh, it doesn't necessarily cover all of those unplanned for circumstances. Absolutely not, you know. And um, the other problem is, as we know, in the big picture, the more of your economy that's devoted to private health, Mm. the more inefficient your economy is. If you look at countries with incredibly privatised health system, obviously America, the the number one example, um, they have worse health outcomes outcomes, uh, higher mortality, uh, lower life expectancy um, than countries like Australia or Britain or some of the European countries that have a mostly public health system. So true, so true. Um, I just want to uh, finish off our chat, which has been very good, Ben. Thank you for our (laughs) in-depth chat here on uh, policy issues. But I do want to... um, I guess, reference the ongoing ideological basis for which we have discussions about energy policy because um, this is something which, you know, it's just utilised as, I guess, a a political football and a way of, I guess, um, you know, cornering Malcolm Turnbull into uh, a certain you know, hopefully they're hoping that Malcolm will turn around and be part of this new crowd of pro-coal, pro, um, you know, greenhouse gas lobby. And certainly there's a group of 20 coalition uh, backbench MPs who have already been part of a group apparently for quite a long time, but decided to give themselves a name so that we in the media could easily reference uh, just what they stand for. And uh, and this is now called the Monash Forum, which I'm not really sure why it's called Monash, but... Um, Poor General Monash has been utilised for a range of means. Yes, uh, I think he might be turning in his grave down at Caulfield there, poor <laughs> exactly. old General Monash. Um, yeah. As we know, sad. actually, himself uh, an adopter of new technologies when a general. Um, so true, so, <laughs> so true. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> doesn't really fit, does it? No. Uh, but they've, they've released a manifesto, it sounds very radical, doesn't it, Ooh. for a group of conservatives, uh, which is about um, the uh, national energy guarantee and the warning uh, against the demonisation of coal. And one of the, I guess, proponents of this group is Liberal MP Craig Kelly, but obviously there's some unsurprising members such as Tony Abbott, Erica Betts and Kevin Andrews. Barnaby Joyce has been linked to this group. 
I mean, is this some kind of insurgency or are we just seeing the same old, same old when it comes to political infighting on energy in the Liberal Party? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right there. It's, it is same old, same old. I mean, these are just the same old characters who've opposed renewable energy from the get-go anyway, so it's not that surprising really. Um, you know, like giving themselves a name, I suppose, helps to brand it a little bit better. But um, as we've discussed on this show many times, uh, the days of coal are coming to an end. The, the technology of coal um, is an old technology. It's no longer the cheapest form of energy. Um, Australia's coal plants are very old and they broke down dozens of times over the summer. So renewable energy is coming on stream very quickly. It's better technology, it's cheaper, and that's why it's winning. It's uh, it's actually an issue of cold hard economics. And as much as the government would like coal to remain, you know, the king of energy, um, it's just not happening for them. And, and, you know, I think, you know, sure, they can fight a culture war over this and they've been fighting it for years. But if you look at what's happening, they're losing. So it does it does doesn't surprise me that there's a bunch of these dinosaurs keeping on arguing for this stuff. But mm. you would think that they would come up with some new talking points at the very <laughs> least, you know. I mean, just on coal being demonised, why yeah. do people think coal is a bad idea? Because it's destroying the planet, you know, because it's warming the atmosphere and the oceans, which is warming the planet, and killing the Great Barrier Reef, etc., etc., etc. So, I mean, you know, there's a reason why coal has a bit of a bad reputation. Mm, mm. No surprise there. And uh, obviously, the states have kind of picked up the ball generally, not all, but um, and turned it around a little bit in terms of taking charge as much as they can in terms of their contribution to renewable energy growth. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out the federal government still really doesn't have an energy policy. It's so-called NEG, um, National Energy Guarantee, is an eight-page brochure. It's never been legislated. It doesn't really represent anything concrete. The states have forged ahead, particularly in South Australia and Victoria and Queensland, with ambitious mm. renewable energy targets. Now, South Australia has recently changed governments and they're going to go back on some of their renewable energy policies. But South Australia is already so renewable um, that it doesn't really matter. Like, they're pretty much, like, decarbonised already over there. Um, Victoria is rapidly catching up. Um, Queensland's on the way now. So we're going to see, I think, rapid decarbonisation of the energy system driven by economics as well as by state government policy. Exactly. And there is a real need for um, those who are financially investing in energy to be able to know what the ongoing energy policy will be. So if there's a policy vacuum, it certainly also creates um, destabilisation. Well, unfortunately, there's been one of those for, well, ever since um, the Labor government lost power in 2013. So that, that's going to continue really as long as the coalition's in government. Um, but, you know, there's some very interesting things happening at the margins and you've got this dynamic new energy regulator at AEMO, Audrey Zebelman. She's been very effective since she came in. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of market reform that remains to be done in the energy system. Lots of Lots of unfinished business in energy policy, but you can see now which way the wind is blowing, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And um, and we can see like that the the days of fossil fuel energy are increasingly numbered. Well, that's a nice way to end our segment, I think, Ben, on that uplifting note. Uh, so thanks for coming in and chatting federal politics with us, and hope you have a good week. Thanks, Amy. Cheers, mate. 
That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. He's also a lecturer at Monash University. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. And as I said, I have with me some really special guests. Um, They've come in, made the trip in to talk about a great exhibition that's on at the Centre for Contemporary Photography uh, in Fitzroy. And it is um, a really interesting exhibition because it brings up a lot of issues and themes, political issues, social issues, gender issues. And uh, we will be discussing that complexity and nuance in this this uh, discussion of uh, an exhibition which is called Entre Nous, uh, Claude Cahoon and Claire Ray. So I have with me in the studio uh, Claire Ray and Gareth Sivray and they will uh, discuss um, their, I guess, fascinating involvement in this uh, exhibition and also your involvement, Gareth, with Claude Cahoon and her work and uh, the archives over there in Jersey. So um, Claire, welcome and Gareth. Thank you. Hi. Good morning, Amy. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, now, let's start out, uh, I guess, with the how you got to, I guess, have this dialogue with um, such a fascinating artist and photographer, Claude Cahoon. Um, now, it's important to note that Claude uh, was born Lucy Schwab, so she or they changed their name um, at a point, uh, you know, in their life when they decided actually gender stereotypes or norms don't necessarily fit with me. I don't necessarily identify with one particular sex. Um, That said, uh, Claude was a lesbian who had a a lover and partner who travelled with her to uh, Jersey at, I think it was 1936, 37? They they made a number of trips over to Jersey. Um, uh, So her partner was Marcel Moore and uh, they would go there on holidays sort of alone as teenagers and um, and then finally relocated in the sort of mid to late 30s, I think around 36, 37. Um, yeah, by 1937, they um, had acquired property and, uh, you know, they moved permanently to the island. Yes. Yeah. So they already had, I guess, a dialogue or relationship with this kind of space and beautiful place, really. It's so yeah. stunning when you're looking at the pictures. If, even though they're in black and white, I can imagine what it looks like. And these Jersey Islands, for people who don't really know where it is, Gareth, where um, are they situated or is it? Yeah, so Jersey is um, one island within uh, the archipelago of the Channel Islands, which is situated in the English Channel, um, but very much nearer to the coast of France in the Bay of Normandy, so about 20 miles from France than it is to the south coast of the UK. Mm. And so in terms of the culture of that island, I mean, is it a mix of um, British and French culture or how is that um, experienced by the people? There. Yeah, absolutely. So the islands are historically part of the Duchy of Normandy. Um, they have their um, point of departure from that kind of eight centuries ago um, in 1204. So um, effectively, yeah, it's a, a kind of um, a British Norman cultural space. Mm-hmm. And it's actually been said that um, that kind of cultural hybridity, um, that kind of um, Anglo-French position is something that actually interested Claude. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting. And you yourself, um, you're an archivist and project leader at Archile, is that how to pronounce it? Sure, yeah. Yeah, Um, which is at Jersey? 
Um, yeah, so it's based on the island. Um, and my role is as photographic archivist. I look after the main uh, 19th and early 20th century photo archive. Um, and um, so Archile is kind of a contemporary arm of that. Mm-hmm. So it invites um, contemporary practicing artists to engage with the historic archive and form um, you know, c- contemporary responses to that. And we have a mm-hmm. residency program um, which invites international artists to the island. And um, so hence the kind of connection with Claire Ray's project yeah. um, and her arrival, arrival on the island to research the Cahoon archive and make new work. And presumably then um, this is quite a broad archive and the Cahoon works and her writings and photography are part of that but it's not the whole um the whole archive no 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 um i mean it's an incredibly important um and um it's become you know of of international significance um uh for artists and researchers um but it is certainly as part of a a much broader archive Um, but an amazing story in itself um as you may know um Cahoon's kind of position um, is understood through uh, posthumous rediscovery in the 1980s. That story actually starts in 1972 with the death of um, Marcel Moore or Suzanne Malherbe um, as she was born. Um, and uh, the sale of their estate, including the photographs, their library and writings um, at that time. Um, so it was following uh, the acquisition by a local um, book collector um, that um, the collection uh, was rediscovered and um, ultimately was acquired by Jersey Heritage, um, who care for the archive today. It's really amazing to think that uh, that kind of history can be rediscovered in primary documents like that and then obviously um, kept in their place of origination you know that um these works that have been created in jersey can be kept there and and then your work is obviously really important in illuminating that so let's talk about this um collaboration really between uh claire and claude through the jersey project at archile um claire you must have somehow stumbled across claude's work um at, at one point what was it that drew you to claude Um, I first discovered her work when I was doing my undergrad degree at RMIT and she's often referred to as a predecessor to to photographic artists like Cindy Sherman in that um, she uh, utilised kind of costume and and sort of theatrical elements um, to stage her photographs. But, you know, at a time, you know, in sort of the 19-teens and 20s when it was sort of completely... um, uh, y- you know, sort of avant-garde and, and kind of totally subversive and, and um, yeah. So I discovered her work in undergrad and then during my master's degree sort of started to research her more in terms of um, gender theory and uh, a lot of my master's research was sort of focused on um, thinking about the way that gender is performed. So Cahoon obviously came up quite uh, strongly in that mm. research. And and after I finished that degree, I really wanted to do an international residency and I just thought I knew I knew of the Cahoon archive in Jersey and I'd heard about the Arkyle residency and I thought you know, I'm just going to try and go for it. It's it's an incredible opportunity. And so I was very lucky to get funding through the Australia Council um, that, and they funded uh, the residency portion of the trip. Um, 
And so I got to spend a kind of incredible month uh, initially on Jersey, just in depth in the archive, looking at everything that they had, all of the photographs, her writing, all the ephemera, you know, there's an incredible wealth of um, stuff there, (laughs) (laughs) Um, including, you know, the kind of beautiful, like, um, envelopes that contained her photographs uh, that she had processed at the chemist. Oh, wow. Yeah, really incredible. And so, you know, by kind of being involved and invested in the archive, you get to see so much more than you can, Mm. you know, by looking at work in books or reproduced on the internet. So um, it was really important for me to actually go there and immerse myself in that material. And then... um, you know, I knew that I wanted to make new photographic work in response to the archive. I had sort of no conception of what that might be going over there. Um, I sort of, you know, my work is quite performative and I use my own body in my photographs. So I knew that, you know, something would emerge, but um, I became very enamoured with the landscape of Jersey and uh, and it was kind of impossible not to look at those photographs that that Claude Cahoon had made there and and then, uh, you know, go and respond to those sites. So I started off by, uh, you know, looking at the sites that she had photographed in Jersey. So her and Marcel Moore had this incredible property called La Roquets, which is in St. Brillard's Bay, right on the water. Um, so I went to that bay and I went to the surrounding areas and she made a lot of work in the sort of intertidal areas of Jersey, which are, mm. which are quite significant. Um, and then I sort of became uh, really drawn to other aspects of the island. So there's this incredible Neolithic history um, in the island of Jersey that, it, that is quite visibly evident um, by the remains of the, the dolmen, the um, burial chambers that are kind of, you know, structured out of granite and they're really kind of iconic visual um, uh, rocks. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so the, the project kind of expanded outwards and, and, yeah. st- and I started to sort of think about what might happen when I inserted my, you know, female body into that landscape. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the landscape itself and some of the photos that you have created, um, I mean, they're really beautiful in terms of the light and the contrast and the textures of the rocks in particular have are really beautiful and come up amazingly. And I, I wonder how you managed to create that level of detail and depth um, with the rocks particularly. Yeah. You know, what kind of light did you need to utilise when you're doing something like that in black and white and, and what kind of camera equipment were you using? Sure, yeah. I shoot on a medium format camera. It's a Mamiya 645, um, which kind of gives a larger negative. So you kind of automatically get a bit more detail when you're trying to blow up a photograph. Mm. So it's all um, shot on film and then the prints in the exhibition are printed in the darkroom. Um, but, yeah, the light over there is very different to the light in Australia and when I first went it was, you know, very early spring in March and the light was incredibly soft and there were some very beautiful um, kind of misty days uh, where I photographed and then later on I went back in July to finish the project and um, did a lot of shooting in the very early morning and, and early evening, mm. sort of dusk time. Which yeah. is summer over there. Yeah, it is summer <laughs> over there in July. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, quite beautiful. And Jersey is a quite an incredible, um, uh, you know, holiday destination for a lot of um, British people and French people. And mm. so, um, it's you know, it was gorgeous. It was really gorgeous to be there in summer. Mm. And um, one of the interesting parts of 
Claude's work and obviously uh, I'm guessing the archive is that she was French uh, speaking. Yep. Presumably she wrote a great deal in French um, and her partner uh, translated a lot of their work into German. Uh, certainly their political statements um, yeah. in the period where the Nazis uh, came over to Jersey and occupied that island. Um, when you are engaging with the archive, both of you, um, reading these kind of works in another language, um, you know, how, I mean, when you're English speaking and French speaking and you're um, reading into what she's saying, uh, what was that experience like for you first, Claire, as an Australian? And then I'll talk to you, Gareth, yeah. about that. Sure. My French is pretty limited <laughs> to about year 10 French. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, I mean, some of her work has been translated into English, mm. so I was lucky to, to find those documents significantly the journal that she wrote while she was imprisoned when Jersey was occupied by the Nazis um, a, a kind of good part of that has been translated so I got to read the war diary um, and you know but otherwise it was just kind of a process of deciphering I had kind of you know Google Translate going <laughs> whilst I was in the archive trying to um, figure it out um, I mean really I, w I really wanted to engage with the visual material mm. so um, but also, you know, kind of reading... She often kind of wrote notes on the back of the photographs and and that was really important. Um, one of her uh, texts, Aver, Non Avenue, has been translated into English um, and that's been fa fantastic to mm. read. It's kind of an incredible um, sort of surrealist uh, collection of writings that um, is very personal, very um, sort of diaristic but also quite nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. And she, she's she been known really for her poetry as well as her photography. And uh, in the Surrealist mo movement, uh, André Breton showed his admiration and, and wrote about that, uh, mm. encouraging her to continue to write um, and that, he was, that sh she was really uh, one of the most important inquiring minds of our time. Um, and, uh, and then he said, but you find pleasure in keeping silent. So there's this mm. interesting way of her expressing herself through these uh, self-portraits, through poetry, through um, diaristic writing. And yet, um, it's, you know, she's not necessarily revealing herself in a clear way. Like it's hard to put a category onto anything that she's presenting and that's deliberate. Absolutely. Um, so mm. Gareth, when you have been engaging with these archives and understanding Claude and I guess these... Um, just undefinable elements of her personality and her um, being and her life. How do you, as an archivist, seeking to try and make meaning out of it and understand it, how do you grapple with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is um, one of the amazing things is that um, what we have is, you know, these 800 photographs and um, the writings, the private papers, which um, are a kind of an archive of this incredible life of kind of resistance and creative intensity. Um, but that was, you know, um, with the exception of the um, literary works that were published, effectively a private archive. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, in itself is a kind of um, a major kind of um, idea or issue to kind of grapple with, um, you know, the role of the, of the kind of viewer in that process and the, the thought of the sort of intense collaboration that existed between um, Claude and Marcel in the production of their photographs, of course, is, you know, is, is really kind of significant in terms of the angle that you, that you take and, and the way you approach the work. 
Um, but, I mean, you're right that um, uh, given the kind of bilingual nature of Jersey culture and ability to read French is obviously, you know, <laughs> a great kind of attribute. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as Claire says, um, Avernon Avenue, which kind of directly translated means confessions not delivered, um, has been translated and as a kind of uh, a compromise, um, the title that's been given by translators is disavowals. Um, so, but I think that, um, you know, really uh, says something about kind of Claude's whole position and, and philosophy. It's a, a kind of um, an incredible poetic work, which is sort of, um, you know, suffused with this kind of negation or paradox and, you know, is, is kind of really unfixed um, in its expression and meaning. Mm. And um, as we were talking off air, she means... Uh, things like different things to different people and she has quite a lot of significance for those um, who are gender fluid and queer and identify with that label and obviously um, expressing herself this exhibition um, that you've put together Claire really is a dialogue with her work across the ages we've mm. got really early photographs and then the, the later ones when she's um, you know engaging in resistance style photographs um, I mean in terms of that particular um, I guess a difficulty perhaps in trying to um, engage with the different meanings that are in her photos within yeah. your practice but also yeah. then in selecting the images how do you do that because obviously you've you've identified one thing which is you know gender representation and and the male gaze and yeah. I guess um, the female body and how that's presented and I guess um, you know in some ways subverting the male gaze and what might be deemed beautiful or yeah. feminine um, mm -hmm. so could you share more about that because I know that's a pretty gritty topic, but um, yeah. but that's really what you're engaging with, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her um, representation of or her kind of representation of herself and engagement with gender identity was really significant, and it is very significant for a lot of people, as you mentioned. You know, the difficult task for me in uh, showing her work in Australia was deciding what to include and what to leave out, and. Um, I kind of, you know, had to make some really hard decisions there about, you know, the work that I felt was really crucial to the project and then the work that um, perhaps uh, people might be able to have another opportunity to see. So I really focused on the photographs that she made in Jersey, the photographs that um, I felt uh, really kind of gave an insight or illuminated her um, photographic practice. So... Uh, the kind of incredible thing that emerged for me through looking at the archive was viewing or sort of getting an, an understanding of her kind of consistency of photographic practice. So, which, you know, it really must be pointed out was made in collaboration with her partner, Marcel Moore. So, you know, Cahoon is often credited as the artist, but, you know, it's my understanding um, and it's sort of come, come to be sort of more common perception that they really made those photographs mm -hmm. together, possibly with Cahoon directing the composition, but um, certainly it was an artistic collaboration between the two. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's so much that is evident in those photographs. So I really had to kind of pick out a few, 
you know, strands and ideas that were um, really significant for me, one of which you've already touched on, which is, uh, you know, representations of, of a woman's body, um, particularly at that time where it was very subversive to present yourself as, you know, potentially an alternate form of feminine or non-feminine or gender neutral. Um, and then an, another very significant um, element of her work that kind of revealed itself through viewing the archive was the way that she photographed herself, her, you know, her female body ageing over time. And that became a kind of a really um, key idea for me as an artist who, you know, I use my own body in my work and I have been for 10 years and obviously the body is changing and, and so you know, sort of viewing her sort of self-portraits, I say that in uh, inverted commas, acknowledging her partner, Mm. Um, viewing those photographs and this kind of consistent practice documenting herself as she aged, I think is a truly kind of feminist subversive act. And uh, it was really kind of crucial for me to include some of those later portraits in the exhibition because I think they're just astonishing Mm. and incredibly powerful. They are. Um, Let's maybe talk about a couple of them. Mm. um, There's one where she, I found it so striking and I tried to initially figure out what was in her mouth. And she has this um, badge, a Nazi Third Reich. um, Yeah iconography in her mouth um, yes. and she's an older lady in that particular um, picture she's standing in a doorway mm-hmm. and she has a scarf over her head she's wearing um, a kind of I guess a trench coat style um, thing and a bit of a I guess a coast a waistcoat style yeah. outfit so it's quite androgynous and um, not really gendered although the hair headscarf might you might say would associate with um, you know traditional female mm-hmm. uh, clothing of the time but I mean, that was really fascinating to me. Like all of, you know, her earlier photos, she looked like a different person, I guess. And she just has this um, evolution and constant change in her identity and her visual representation that you almost um, question whether it is the same Mm. person in Mm. those photographs. I mean, in that particular photograph, it's referencing something pretty important that was happening at the time. Um, Her and Marcel's uh, resistance against the Nazis using uh, pamphlets that were really uh, quite radical um, to, I guess, uh, create dissent within uh, the Gestapo and uh, German commanders who were on the island and were seeking to, I guess, create rebellions or mm-hmm. desertions. Mm. Um, exactly. and, and that's why they were then jailed uh, and... and also attempted suicide uh, when they were in prison. Yeah. It's a pretty significant part of this, um, that photo, and also this story of the island. Absolutely. How I mean, Gareth, particularly um, with the archives and that story of Jersey and Claire's, sorry, Claude's work, um, you know, that was referencing that resistance. I mean, how rich is your archive on that particular topic, and just how important was Claude to this, um, I guess, resistance movement? Um, yeah, I mean, very significant. And um, the, um, you know, the sort of the beginning of that is that um, Claude and Marcel moved to Jersey in 1937 to um, escape the rising threat of fascism in Europe. She was Jewish, it should be noted. Yes, yeah. so very significant, of course. Mm. Um, and um, so, but... Um, you know, the sort of shifting position um, of the history with that is that on the 1st of July 1940, um, the islands were invaded by Nazi Germany and occupied um, for five years until the 9th of May 1945. Um, Pretty soon, um, immediately, um, 
in uh, 1940, um, Claude and Marcel uh, began this incredible um, campaign of um, resistance through um, the distribution of propaganda tracts. Um, Marcel was fluent in German, and um, so they um, were able to um, write these um, uh, notes um, and items and distribute them um, in incredibly kind of dangerous and ambitious ways um, by uh, visiting cafes in the town of St. Helier, the capital of Jersey, um, and kind of planting them in the pockets of um, uh, German officers' uniforms um, by kind of concealing them in cigarette packets and leaving them on cafe tables and um, also leaving them on kind of German um, staff cars and vehicles and things. Um, so, uh, you know, incredibly kind of risky um, and brave, actually. Um, and ultimately, when they were uh, arrested in 1944, the German authorities couldn't believe that the kind of breadth and extent of this campaign could have been conducted by um, two women. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, as you say, um, an incredibly significant part of the story. Uh, and the particular story in relation to the image that you mentioned and this um, German uniform badge, mm. um, when they were imprisoned, um, they befriended uh, a German prisoner, a German soldier, um, and it was actually given to Claude by him. So that's the connection mm. of why she had it in her possession and then was able to incorporate it into this um, incredible portrait, which, mm. um, you know, is much kind of referenced and exhibited. Mm. Um, and um, sorry, I was just going to interrupt and say it was made in 1945, that, mm. that portrait, so obviously just after liberation. Um, yes, in the, in the immediate aftermath. You know. mm, yeah, and certainly uh, their incarceration uh, cert affected their health a great deal, um, not only because they had that uh, suicide attempt, but then yeah. were um, held in there for such a long time. And, uh, and certainly also um, there was a great deal of uncertainty as to whether their um, death sentence would be carried out. Um, where they were meant to be sent back to Germany to be um, beheaded, which is quite a horrific um, you know, fate mm -hmm. and uh, obviously had a reprieve in the end, um, which I also found quite interesting uh, to know that uh, um, because of they were local commanders were afraid of reprisals um, by doing this, they decided uh, to seek to, I guess, reduce um, the, the potential uprise by uh, getting them to appeal for a pardon, but they refused to appeal yeah. and uh, and seek anything from the Third Reich. So even there, they're you know making such important important political statements and dissent yeah. and it's really powerful to see you know these women middle-aged at that point doing such important political um, subversive acts and mm -hmm. certainly also not just you know um, that in that way but also being lesbians also being avant-garde surrealists being Jewish um, you know they have so many uh, I guess um, they're outside the fray, really, in terms of the things that they're doing and the, and pushing against as well. Absolutely. It's quite inspiring um, to see and to obviously resurface through this exhibition. Mm. So, Claire, um, you know, in terms of the breadth of 
photographs that you've really presented here, which, as we've said, you know, that one um, is really quite different to something that you might have seen earlier on in Claude's um, career. Could you talk a bit about some of the earlier pieces and how, you know, you've interacted with those as well? Because they are quite different and distinct in terms of the way she's representing herself, um, you know, visibly in terms of feminine or masculine or non-gendered at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she made a number of... um self-portraits or her and Marcel made photographs together in her teenage years and you know she shaved her head as a sort of late teenager um and sort of came across as uh as you know very androgynous I guess uh my sort of um interpretation or sort of interaction with those works is not strictly literal like uh you know I'm I'm not um gender neutral I you know um uh, I'm very much a cis female. <laughs> um, uh, however, it's the kind of uh, presentation of, of a, I guess, a multiplicity of identity that I really connected with, and this, um, you know, I guess that sort of lived experience of the body, really, essentially, where uh, you know, it's it's not one thing. It's kind of it's you know, a, it's a multiple thing that changes as you age and grow and um, change as a person. So. Uh, just kind of, yeah, some of those early works she um, uh, engaged with much more theatrically. Mm. Um, she made a number of stage sort of portraits in the twenties when she lived in Paris, and some of those were um, photographs for theatrical plays that she um, acted in. Um, and they're sort of the more well-known ones. There's one co- that's sort of referred to as the "Don't Kiss Me" picture. There's um, writing across her chest, and she's sort of dressed as a as a weightlifter, and she's and that says "Don't Kiss Me, I'm in Training." Um, so th- they're the sort of more iconic photographs that I guess suggest this um, relationship to masquerade and to um, theatricality that that was really groundbreaking at that time. Um, But then some of the ones, like I can see one you've got up on screen, the portrait seated on a blanket with a mask on. Mm, It's very Um, striking. It is incredible. And uh, the sort of, I find that it's a very tender portrait, but it's also, Mm. you know, quite beguiling because she's wearing a mask and um, the way that she presents her body and it wasn't until we sort of viewed that in the archive very closely that I realised she, you know, she has a scar across her uterus in that photograph, which is, was sort of unbeknownst mm. to me. And, and I'm, you know, I can't find a um, record of a um, operation that, you know, um, would give more detail on that. But uh, the sort of, you know, the details and aspects that come out through viewing the photographs in person was really just kind of groundbreaking yeah Yeah. absolutely i I think that um you know one of the um most useful ways to think about those photographs actually is to um think of them in terms of claude's own voice um and you know um uh, what she wrote in the 20s and published in in Avenue in 1930. Um, and there's a, a, a quote here from her where she um, is obviously referring to a kind of um, uh, position on sexuality and normative interpretations of gender. And she says, shuffle the cards, masculine, feminine. It depends on the situation. Neuter is the only gender that always suits me. Mm. And I think you can look at those um, 
kind of um, as they're, they're sometimes referred to as auto portraits or self portraits from that period of the 20s and 30s um, and think of them very much as those cards that she's playing in this kind of exploration mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah very well said and obviously it's great to have her voice as you say at as a part of this and looking at her images, it definitely does you know, inform how we view them. And certainly then, um, you know, Claire, your works that are, I guess, juxtaposed and interacting across the room with them is also really interesting. And the way that you've laid out this exhibition, mm. I was trying to, I guess, figure out some of what you were doing in terms of, you know, where you've placed them across the room. And there are some thematic and visual similarities between your works when you're looking across the room as you go down into CCP. Could you talk a bit about how you've curated and put together this? And and I guess then when you were looking at the photographs you've created, how they fit or, you know, are interacting? Yeah. So the exhibition kind of design and layout... um, was obviously really crucial in thinking about how how I would kind of extrapolate the conceptual elements of the exhibition. So, um, so when you sort of walk into Gallery One at CCP, there's my work um, is installed on the uh, right hand side and Cahoon's is on the left hand side, and and so kind of immediately, you know, I was trying to set up this sort of visual dialogue across the space, as you say, and and I've been very kind of careful to. Um, place certain photographs at sort of specific points in the exhibition so there is a kind of clear visual connection between them that only kind of happens maybe once or twice um where there is a kind of aesthetic connection you know my work sort of looks quite different to hers I think apart Mm. from the obvious similarities that we both shot black and white film um uh, but I, st- I st- start the exhibition on the sort of Cahoon side with the really significant works that I came across in the archive that had a very powerful impact on me. So there's a really fantastic image of hers called Jeton Le Bras, which um, is a photograph uh, where you can only see her arms and they're emerging sort of through this granite um, gatepost uh, in Jersey. And when I saw that photograph in the archive, I was so enamoured with it because it's a really incredible interpretation of the body and stone kind of together. Um, and the archivist who I was sort of working with at the time was said, oh, you know, that's just a gatepost. They're everywhere. You know? <laughs> she was very dismissive of it. And I, because I was kind of, you know, every photograph I was looking at, I was like, where is this? You know? Yeah. Um, and I hunted for that gatepost. I never found it. I found mm. a few, like quite a few that are similar, um, but none that I could squeeze my arms through. <laughs> um, so, so that one kind of start, you know, is one of the first images that begins the series, and um, and then yeah, I mean, I kind of tried to lay out the photographs uh, that I've made on the right hand side as a, a sort of um, a somewhat of a narrative. It's a very sort of non-linear narrative mm. that. Um, you know, introduces the project and and I've taken photographs, as I said, in the landscape, but also um, there are some in the physical building of the Jersey Archive mm. where the Claude Cahoon photographs are held. Um, a lot of my previous work was has been staged in uh, institutions and, and sort of public space and I'm always kind of drawn to that tension between public and private space and, and sort of how we behave in those spaces. So those pho- photographs were quite important for me. Um, mm. 
and then yeah sort of um, engaging with uh, the very unusual and unique um, landscape of Jersey. It is really unique um, and I think one of the final things I wanted to touch on is um, the way that you hold yourself in these photos and your body and the tension or not tension in some of those yeah. photos that, that, you, you, that you hold and the poses that you're enacting versus, I guess, Claude's work and, um, and whether you see similarities or differences in, I guess, the way that you are um, put, presenting yourself in the shapes that you're creating, in the tension that you're holding, in the way yeah. that you're, I guess... It's seated or interacting with, you know, rocks and sand and the water. Yeah, I mean, some of her some of her photographs I find are very sublime, and uh, and I guess that's an interpretation of the landscape that I kind of am visually drawn to, but that I immediately sort of resist. Um, you know, through the sort of research around the archive and, and creating this body of work, I've really started to think about what a kind of feminist landscape photography might be. And so, um, I mean, I haven't drawn huge conclusions about that yet, but I think certainly um, inserting a kind of uh, inserting a, a performative body into that space and trying to draw out some tension in the way that that you know landscapes are kind of ordinarily depicted um has been really key to my thinking and just i mean on that sort of note about studying cahoon's photographs i was very um uh you know very sort of drawn to the gestures and the um you know a lot of the photographs in the archive are, are quite um I guess casual, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a real mix of, um, you know, sort of more overtly staged photographs and then these sort of very intimate, um, you know, uh, sort of more, um, how would you describe that? <laughs> um, I guess you could say um, possibly vernacular. Vernacular, mm. isn't it? Um, yep. You know, um, certainly, uh, you know, produced in a kind of domestic context, yeah. a, a, certainly a private. Yeah context of the relationship between Claude and Marshall. Yeah, so I was thinking about the way that her body, her body is depicted in those photographs and it's, um, you know, it's often sort of unassuming but once you kind of dig down deep and really look at her gestures and poses, there is a lot going on there and I was sort of thinking about that when creating these photographs. Yeah, mm. it's really fascinating. And Gareth, given um, your intimate knowledge of Claude's archive, uh, the archive of Claude's work and Marcel's work, but also this broader Jersey history, uh, you've come across the sea uh, to Australia to see or be part of this program really you're giving a talk yourself on Thursday as Claire is um, about uh, the archives and uh, and it's called just so if people want to look it up and uh, and attend the altered insular Claude Cahoon in Jersey and uh, Claire's is uh, mirrors it's actually sorry to cut you off it's yeah. Lin Lyndall Walker is also doing a talk that's her presentation oh right it's not yeah. there it should be. It's it just doesn't say Lindell. Oh. CCP need to update their information. Um, oh, anyway. I'll anyway. Yeah, it's not up. Oh, it's under Mirror's selfie and female yeah. gaze. It says that uh, Lindell will be giving a talk. Yeah, so that's happening on, both talks are happening on Thursday night. Excellent. Um, followed by a book launch of a book that I've made of the project. Oh, with, really? Yeah, oh, with awesome. Perimeter. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. What a packed 
evening. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> There's a lot Absolutely. going on. Yeah. And it's super cheap because it's a gold coin donation. So uh-huh. that's something to think about for your Thursday night. Um, but I just wanted to understand, Gareth, um, what you will be looking at in particular now that you're coming to give be part of this public program. You know, you've been really important in facilitating Claire's dialogue with this mm. archive and um, having international artists uh, come over to look at this archive from your perspective as an archivist and, you know, understanding these particular areas in a great deal of depth. How have you viewed CCP's exhibition and Claire's um, work? Um, well, CCP, um, it's been, a, you know, an absolute pleasure to um, to be involved and contribute. It's a wonderful space and a wonderful culture of, um, you know, um, understanding of uh, contemporary photography that, that's happening in that institution. So, um, and for us, you know... Um, it's for a tiny island um, in the English Channel with a population of 100,000, you know, um, how we kind of rise to the challenge of um, the obvious huge international historic significance of, of the Cahoon archive is really important to mm. us. Um, and, you know, when we have um, contemporary artists such as Claire Ray engaging both with the archive and um, the contemporary landscape of, of the island in a, in a major way, um, the opportunity to, um, to support that and um, you know to facilitate as you say the um, the inclusion of um, you know this sort of major collection of Cahoon works to mm. a Melbourne to an Australian audience is obviously really great and and rewarding um, and equally um, the show will be traveling to Jersey in September this year so we'll be able to kind of um, you know reverse the equation mm. and so our community will be able to um, get to see the outcome of, of, of Claire's project and engagement. That's really awesome mm. and does that mean that you run this program I guess yearly or annually? Um, yeah so um, we um, the archival project uh, broadly speaking seeks to, to do this thing of connect um, photographic archives with contemporary practice and particularly think about experiences of island cultures and geographies mm. um, so a kind of international residency program is part of that and we have a, a kind of um, you know a, a, an annual residency um, where we kind of fund artists to come but we also um, you know very much respond to kind of occasional projects and proposals many of which um, you know are kind of inspired by the fact that we've got the Cahoon archive um, you know Claire Race is, is, is obviously one of those so you know we, we, we um, love to do occasional projects like this as well. Mm. Well I'm heading on a plane to Jersey very soon because <laughs> it looks amazing and it sounds fascinating mm. and uh, and I hadn't even understood um, just now, and now I'm beginning to understand this interesting bicultural um, dialogue that is occurring between British culture and French culture, and then you're bringing in others who mm. have also come in from other parts of Europe and beyond. So it sounds like a really interesting place to stay and understand and, yeah, be part of. Um, thank you both for coming in and spending time delving more deeply into uh, Claude Cahoon's work and you, Claire Ray, um, have done such a phenomenal job to uh, create your own works. And I know that must be so particularly difficult just to do your own thing, but then be in dialogue with another artist and feel that, you know, pressure and responsibility to, yeah. you know, <laughs> to be representing them as well. It's something that's a, a huge feat. So congratulations on doing that. And thank you, uh, Gareth, for you know facilitating it and, uh, and providing your expertise. It's fantastic. Oh, 
It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having us, Amy. Thank you. That was Claire Ray, who's a photographer and artist, and also Gareth Sivray, and he's a photographic archivist at the Societe Jose's in St. Helier in Jersey, which is an island uh, in the Channel Islands at and it's a UK island, uh, but as I said, has a great deal of French culture. And in 2011, he founded Archile, the Jersey Contemporary Photography Program. Uh, so it's really um, a lot happening over at CCP. There's a couple of other exhibitions there as well. So um, that's a, this is the main exhibition, but there's another room um, dedicated to some beautiful uh, landscape shots and another exhibition as well. So head on down. It reopens tomorrow uh, from the Easter break. And And uh, it's the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy, just off Brunswick Street. And as I said, if you're interested in the public program, which will be occurring, it's on Thursday, the 5th of April at 6pm. It's a gold coin donation. You don't need to book. And as Claire said, her book is being launched there. It's called Never Standing on Two Feet. And there'll be two talks, one by Lyndall Walker and another by Gareth Sivray, who's been one of our guests today. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. I mentioned before the break that uh, we would be speaking with uh, Spontaneous Broadway, which is Australia's favourite musical improv show. They are back for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and I'm really excited because the last time I saw them was at the Melbourne Fringe Festival many moons ago and it was so fun. I think I saw about five shows at least. Like It was so cool. So I'm really excited to have uh, everyone with me and I have now joining me and I'm going to go through the panel uh, that we have. We've got Russell Fletcher, who's the MC. Hi, Russell. Hi, Amy. It's great to see that the addiction to spontaneous Broadway <laughs> hasn't hampered you in any way. Not at so all. <laughs> I've been hanging out for this for a very long time. I can tell you I'll be front row uh, at more than one show this season. So thank you. Tremendous. You'll get the lollies. <laughs> Winner. Um, and I've got Gillian Cosgrove and, Sa- uh, sorry, Sally Bourne. That's fine. It's Sammy, Sally. <laughs> Sally. Salty, 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 Salty Bourne. Salty <laughs> <laughs> Who are our actors and singers. Good evening. No, good, afternoon, good, morning. Good, good very time. early good very, morning. Yes, it's 25 past 11. It must be the night time. I'm never up <laughs> Exactly. You do late shows, so, you know, it's fair. We, we've just stayed up raving. All yeah, night all since our show at the yeah. Trades Hall. Oh, God, yeah. We're just going off for a month. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be, need to be hospitalised after this, potentially. I've got John Thorne here on the keys. Hi, Hi John. Amy. Hello. And Hello. Uh, you're a fantastic musician in your own right, have done some amazing works yourself. So thank you for joining us. And pleasure, pleasure. You're being part of this great group. And, uh, well, we have a lot to talk about, don't we, uh, with this particular season. I mean, it's been a long time in the making, as I mentioned. Russell and John, you've been really important drivers behind this troupe and group of actors. And there's so many who, um, you know, are part of different shows. You won't see the same cast, presumably, for each show. There is a rotating cast. It is a bit of a a, a movable feast. But John is the main driver of Spontaneous Broadway and the reason why so many thousands of people have enjoyed the show. He brought yeah. he brought the show to this country uh, and also p- improvises an overture, underscores the musical. <laughs> it's phenomenal. And, and comes up with <laughs> tunes that the singers belt out night after night after night. 
brand new ones. Each one's an original one. So yeah. every show's an opening night. Every show's a closing night as well. <laughs> it is pretty special and phenomenal that, I mean, you obviously would require a great deal of skills to be able to improvise that, you know, the styles of music that you go through. Not every musical song is the same and uh, you do go through a lot of genres, John. Um, how do you kind of create out of not a lot um, what the next song will be and then, you know, interacting with the actors. Well, the, the way is to actually to um, make a pad or a, or a, or a, or a, like a little a sound, um, what's the word, accompaniment for the fantastic performance to improvise. So I actually really don't improvise a tune. That's all up to them. So Jill and Sal here are geniuses as well and mm. they just... I, I, I try and give them a, a, you know, a bear that they can then sort of, you know, take off from and I listen closely and try and follow where they go and sometimes I challenge them a bit like they're so great that I sometimes sort of throw in a few you know challenging chords and they sort of catch on to those but other <laughs> other people aren't, aren't so aren't so uh, great and so I tend to play country waltzes for them yeah. <laughs> oh, we now know. Next week play a I love yeah. country waltz. Is my favourite genre at the moment. I'm just saying that right now, but it's also a very accommodating uh, genre for um, the less musical of our cast. Well, if you hear a country waltz, we'll certainly know what's happening. He's talking about me, Amy. <laughs> He's talking about me. Of course. The, the actual characters of the show are great. I just MC host and prod the narrative a little bit. So. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't get to sing too much, but I might be singing a little bit of the musical tonight. I think you will be on, on tonight, Russell, yes. Oh, here we go. I hope, I'm hoping to, that we get to do a cheeky duet. Ah. <laughs> Maybe we can do a group number and we play all the characters. Oh, we are the group. We are a group of two, but and yet mm. many. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gillian and Sally, uh, I'll get you to hone in on your microphone a bit uh, so I can hear the beauty of your voices. Um, but also, you play... Your actors playing characters in a musical, and I mean, this is quite interesting that you kind of have a persona when you're doing this. Yes, um, I'm, improvisation. Uh, I'm Baroness Desolée. I uh, I've been working around the West End. I was in the Eighth Touring Company of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang uh, many many years ago, and I'm currently honing my craft a little bit because I'm I'm trying to get into more of the rock musicals. Mm. So yeah, that's who I am. Jill's. Uh, Jill's that's how desperate she I've is for money. You've never met the Baroness. I used to be a gay Northern Irish woman who oh. was in the army who decided that she wanted to do musicals. No, Baroness is. She was, she was brand new. She was so rough. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, I play Autumn Summers, um, who's very annoying. <laughs> um, Autumn Summers was an original backup singer for the Wiggles. Um, she doesn't want to talk about her feud with Dorothy. <laughs> she sings at Westfields. Um, she oh, isn't wow. paid. She just gets up and gives it a go. <laughs> she's, yeah, she's an exceptionally irritating character that allows me to vent my frustration against many real music theatre performers. <laughs> so at the start of the show, you get to meet all the performers who play characters from the world of musicals and maybe not part of the world of musicals either. Uh, for instance, Rick Brown plays Helmut Vanderbuns. Scott Edgar made his debut last night as Mike Zuckerjobs, who is basically uh, a social media guy who is doing penance for his crimes of harvesting data by doing 
improv oh. shows. <laughs> and that's his, that's his the penalty. Of all. But he pitched a musical last night. The, uh, the audience wrote a song title. It, it was uh, The Lament of the Ingrown Toenail. Uh, and Mike pitched the musical Flamenco Flamingo. Uh, about a no-hoper teenager who ends up being an amazing dancer. So that's basically how the show works. Uh, The audience writes song titles for us that uh, don't exist, they're original, and then the actors grab, the characters grab Mm. these song titles and pitch musicals. Mm. And so this is, as the audience is entering, they're you know, prompted to write these down mm-hmm. in the old school way of handwriting, yes. which is fantastic. And you have this bucket <laughs> of dreams, as you say, that you, you're, you're picking from. I mean, um, Gillian and Sally, this is a huge challenge and something that I was in awe of when I saw it um, many years ago. I just couldn't believe how hilarious everything was. And it seemed like you guys had rehearsed for ages to do something <laughs> which is you know so out all of a sudden it's sp- completely spontaneous as the title you know refers to it's pretty i mean you you, you we pass the bucket along and you tend to sort of grab a, a, a massive wad of about 10 or 20 of them and you just flick through them and keep you know maybe two or three and then you look at them again and you see what sparks and then off you go it's um yes it's on the hoof is yeah. that the expression on the hop on the hoof on the something it's, it's oh it's on it's, the ritz yeah, i don't know it's putting, <laughs> putting it on the ritz putting um, it on the stage yeah i think the thing for me is always not to overthink it if mm. i'm sitting there going i just which of these is going to have a better narrative and which can you know it's just like just pick one I yeah. think nobody 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 knows yeah. nobody knows what you reject yeah. <laughs> i think the 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 idea that the these wonderful improvisers performers have come up with these amazing characters makes them really playful so that they're right in the moment and they don't so they can be very playful with the ideas of genre and narrative and the spontaneity just comes because of that playfulness yeah yeah and so russell your particular role as being mc and kind of i guess bringing everyone together and creating i guess the structure of this show is also a really important role which you will be playing while we're here in uh the studio for our version of spontaneous broadway the triple r edition (laughs) i'll give it a go it's the most important role in the show And, and the great thing is i I say about 10 words per show. <laughs> How uh, much do you get paid? I uh, know. That's why they pay me the big yeah. bucks. You know, we're, we're in showbiz for the money, Amy. Clearly, it's, yeah. uh, it's, an, it's amazing. <laughs> well, as I said, uh, we have this triple R edition of Spontaneous Broadway yes. today. And uh, we will um, go to, well, we'll go to an improvisation. Then we can talk a bit more about the process and what's really happening when you're doing this afterwards. Um, and it, I want to talk about um, also some of the cast, the the other cast after this and you guys can talk about what it is to be an ensemble but let's try this out um, sure. on live radio uh, as you would do normally uh, on a, an evening with possibly a more invisible audience than you can currently see mm-hmm. but they're definitely here and uh, they're fully engaged and awaiting so, <laughs> so is this the list that's been tweeted in this wow. is texted in Facebook Facebook we've, yep. got a li- we've got a list I'll pass it over to oh, lovely. Uh, Autumn Summers and Baroness Desolate. We're going to do a double, a double pitch. Basically what happens is the improvisers, when we start the show, they grab the bucket of dreams, they pull the song titles out that inspire them and then you'll hear uh, the title of the Choices. musical, you'll, you'll hear some plot points about the character f- from, the, from the musical, uh, some bit about the narrative, and then they'll sing the song. So let's, let's do a little pitch now. Who, who'd like to pitch a musical first to our listeners? Um, I would 
love to pitch a musical. It's Autumn Summers, Russell. ladies and gentlemen. It's me, Autumn Summers. I'm very famous. I'm sure everyone recognises my voice. It's so beautiful and soothing. <laughs> um, this is a musical uh, by Grace Lowe. Thank you, Grace. I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. Yeah, we we're all a huge fan of Grace. And uh, this is from her musical... Um, Oh, no more dollars, um, which is a musical about um, an heiress uh, who uh, has a lot of money. She, I mean, she hasn't made any of that money, but she's gotten the money um, because her father um, has a huge um, uh, foie gras company selling foie gras and uh, he's ruined by a bunch of vegans that point out the cruelty uh-huh. of foie gras um, which is very upsetting for her and then she suddenly realises that she's bankrupt aka no more dollars um, and she has to like so many of us find a way to get more dollars um, and what's the style of this particular song Autumn? Oh it's like a beautiful Parisian um, mm. waltz yes. much more complicated than a country waltz today. <laughs> um and the vegans, they're picketing her father's foie gras company um, and she's leaving there one day in her furs and her fineries and uh, and they basically attack her. They surround her wow. and they call her bourgeois. How, how dramatic. What's the name of this character again? Uh, her name is Persephone Smelts. <laughs> Persephone Smelts. <laughs> yep. And uh, that's when she sings this song to the vegans and it's a song called How Dare You Call Me Bourgeois. Ladies and gentlemen, from Oh, No More Dollars, How Dare You Call Me Bourgeois. (laughs) (laughs) Bonsoir, bonsoir, je suis une je ne comprends pas. Sure, I don't speak French, but it doesn't mean that I'm not a man. Sure, I'm fancy and I'm schmancy and I'm driving around in my Rolls Royce car, but how dare you? How dare you call me bourgeois? Sure, I've come here to my father's factory. You're saying it's so cruel the way he acts. He, he fattens these geese up and he fancy dip and you're saying that's something we shouldn't do well here let me give you a tip I'm very very rich and I've got many many cars I for breakfast eat mostly caviar and yes my father is a billionaire thanks to foie gras but I'm not above you Right. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> I'm just winging that. I don't know. But is it, is it a duck? <laughs> well done, fantastic. Jillian. Thank you. So you've kind of just heard a pitch, and yeah. so we do several pitches at the start of the show, and then the audience vote for the musical that they want to see. Uh, the full musical, which I kind of prompted the narrative and set up as a bit of a storyteller. Um, we, we have Baroness Desole in the studio. Yes. We're so fortunate yes. to have, Thank you. Um, Thank you. you know, royalty. In, in, in the house, blue yes, blood. Yes, I, I come from a long line of aristocracy that stopped quite a long time ago. Speaking um, of bankrupt. 
Yes. What was the name of that character? Your your character, little girl. What's uh, it? Persephone. Pers- um, Persephone, Persephone smelts. Yes. Well, this this is quite interesting because you know how Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote um, uh, "Love Never Dies," which was the sequel to "Phantom of the Opera." Uh-huh. You, know, you usually have sequels in musical theatre, but this is actually a bit of a sequel to oh. uh, to uh, the musical she just pitched, oh. which I can't remember the name uh, because uh, it's oh, all about me. No more me. dollars. No more dollars. Yes. Except this one's uh, <laughs> oh, set. No set uh, this is set f- further in the future, uh-huh. um, and this is set uh, with people who uh, require. Welfare. I see. Yes, you know, so, and so people do require welfare. I see. So, what would be the style of the song? The style of this song would be sort of a B 52s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said that. that could Sequels go are always wrong. so desperate, sort of, aren't yeah, they? A B 52s sort of <laughs> jaunty thing, you know? Um, ja- jaunty like a slightly, love shack sort of well, thing. Well, sort of, yeah, quite a little bit crazy, a little bit odd. Um, and often, as we do with uh, Spontaneous Broadway, we don't just have solos, we have duets as well. Um, so this is with uh, my lovely friend Autumn. Uh, and this is set in uh, in, a, in a place uh, where people uh, receive welfare, uh, and they have to go down there and fill in an enormous amount of forms and wait around for days on end, but rarely getting out. Um, and what happens, uh, this, this the rogue machine, which, which gives people their numbers and tells them how long they've got until, you know, they're going to get served, um, goes awry, and people get trapped there for weeks oh, and weeks and days and days on and this is uh, two very unlikely people uh, form a friendship. Um, my character is someone who's come uh, become on, on to hard times. She's wearing a mink coat. She's quite posh, um, not bourgeois. And Autumn Summer's <laughs> character, um, Jane, is uh, a young girl who's been on the streets for a while. But she's uh, she's actually much smarter than my character, um, Benita. Uh, and Benita this is and Jane. Benita and Jane. And uh, this is a musical called Welfare. Well fair, well high, well fair. Like if you were in the UK, you'd mm-hmm. say well fair, well fair, like well 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 hard, you know. And uh, yes, this song is called the Centrelink Shuffle. From well fair, the Centrelink Shuffle. I'm sitting here. I don't know what to think. Oh my God, it's so dirty. I'm sitting here in my jewels and my beautiful hot pink. And I don't know when I'm gonna be served. But I'm pretty sure so far it's been days. Oh my gosh, this will never work. You think that's bad? I've been here for years. I've been sitting here trying to dry all my tears. Cause when I got here, they were serving number seven. God, I'm 2,411! <laughs> we don't know what's gonna happen, but you gotta make sure that your feathers never ruffle when you're doing the Centrelink Shuffle! Wow, in the style of the B-52s. <laughs> yeah, that's that's tremendous. Yeah, that's kind of sort of. <laughs> How fantastic. Shuffle. That's what we should have thank done. you, thank you, Bar- Baroness Desolée and Autumn Summers. It's mm. tremendous. What, what do you think? Would you vote for that musical? Amy? I would vote for it. I certainly <laughs> could relate. I'm sure to that shuffle. <laughs> I love to have a bit of a political, modern theme, making things contemporary, understandable for the audience. Also, that's great that you had that Zuckerberg uh, musical. It's so interesting that what mm. people come up with well, and their ideas. We, we, we are uh, playing at Trades Hall. 
hall every night except Wednesdays and the audience, especially the listening audience of Triple R, will be very proud that we did a very political musical the other <laughs> night set in the 1990s when Jeff Kennett sacked all oh, the tram conductors. Hello. Take that, Jeff Kennett, with our musical. <laughs> and what was it called? What was it? Wham, it wham, was called Wham Bam, wham, thank, thank You, you tram. tram. <laughs> and the song was by, the song title was by a very young guy in the audience and it was a, a, kind of a sweet song title. It was called The End of the... Uh, I love the way so, the E-class tram goes ding. I love the way the E-class tram goes ding. We had a mountaineering uh, musical the other night. Yep. Which was called Summit Up. Uh, the young man came up with a song title, uh, The End of the Line, which uh, inspired that whole mountaineering mm. music. So from little things, big things grow, Amy. That is so true. <laughs> and <laughs> and also, I mean, how many people are part of these musicals once you have voted, once the audience decides what musical they want? How many actors are involved? Hundreds, because our budgets are enormous. <laughs> our, <Yeah>. stage production, <laughs> our stage production is incredible, but uh, the, all the characters are played by four. Yeah, Four, so forecast. and there's a lot of costume changes and prop, uh, yes. you know, things. Tran- transformations. Yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. wig placement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a lot going on and it seems quite frenetic when, you know, you're watching it happen, but you also have great composure, uh, which is important, Well, we're very lucky that we have Russell because he sort of tends to rein us in and make sure that uh, things stay on some sort of track. And, and <laughs> some I'm very, cohesive line And I'm very lucky that I have medication. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, Gillian and Sally, you've been part of this uh, Spontaneous Broadway troupe before. It's certainly not your first um, show. For you, being part of this and, you know, having to work, getting to work with John and Russell, such great musicians and other fellow actors, what is it like? being um, part of this and just how exhausting is it at the end of a night? Uh, it's pretty amazing for me. Um, I, I actually met John Thorne. I already knew about John Thorne when I first met him because my dad used to do theatre sports with these guys, uh, which is very cool. Um, and it's it's such an incredible cast. Um, like I remember the first time I got to do Spontaneous Broadway with Cal Wilson, who's just an amazing comedian. And I just sort of sat there and I was like, can I just play a tree and like take notes? Because she's, <laughs> so, she's so good. Um, it's such an amazing cast of performers with such different strengths that it's always very exciting every night mm. you kind of get there and it's very supportive. Everyone's so excited to kind of watch each other as well, yeah, which yeah. is such a treat. Because I, and I, my background was musical theatre. I lived in London and did the whole West End musical thing for years and years and years and, and then I did comedy while I was over there as well, but I'd never done anything like this and so to come into it... Um, it was just great to have something that was so dangerous and so much fun and just to have to shut your brain off in a way and go, oh, okay, this isn't rehearsed, just off you go. <laughs> and it's just, it honestly, it's, it's the most fun you can possibly have. And the people are, in, are fantastic. Well, the wonderful thing about this season is just such a diverse array. Like John has asked some other young improvisers to play along: uh, Jack O'Reilly, Amberly Carl, Louisa Fitzharding, and uh, last night we had Isabella Vallette on stage with us. And they are amazing singers as well as being incredibly astute performers. Mm. But we've also got really well-known com- comedians joining us, George Capagnaris, Toby Trustlove, Scott Brennan, and next week we have Julia Morris out of the jungle and uh, into Spontaneous She's Broadway. back. She's back. And she's play- <laughs> She's actually played a couple of shows with us before when, when, we've, when we've toured, and she's wonderful to work with, as are all the cast. So yeah. We're very excited by this season. It is super exciting. I know um, some of the actors that I saw a while ago are also returning, like um, Casey Bonetto yeah. and... Uh, and- hey. 
Tracy's fantastic. Andrew McClelland, oh, who Andrew's has a amazing. hilarious character. The character he plays. <laughs> his character is Hepzibah um, Nobility Jones. Jones. Yeah. Uh, Aurora from the colonial days of Rangoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is quite a... It's a classic. And Emily Tahini, she is yep. often on uh, Mad as Hell with Sean McAuliffe. Um, yeah, Amanda Buckley, Rick Brown. So many great... Uh, Actors. Amanda Buckley's character is Lolly Jubby, who's a South African musical theatre uh, performer. <laughs> it's in, in the spirit of, of, of detente between South Africa and Australia. There's a bit of tension at the moment. And having her on stage with us, it's quite, it's quite peaceful. It's very topical. Because <laughs> she doesn't scream at all. <laughs> <laughs> what a voice. You haven't had a cricket-themed song yet. No, no oh. not us. Not us. Yeah. But, mm. Well, we had a so. Sam Smith pitch the other night, mm. didn't we? Steve, Steve Smith. Steve Smith. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Smith is that real sad pop sing the sad songs. That's right. Well, they're all, you know, someone Smith. <laughs> yes, exactly. Smith is a common name. It Jeez. is. Uh, yeah, well, let's um, also talk about, uh, you know, the musicals that you create because there's obviously more than one song part of this and it's really a story that you put together somehow it might, and it does kind of veer off onto some interesting, uh, you know, places. How do you take <laughs> cues from each other and, and you know, build on a narrative? I, I guess in our brains we've all got that yes and, which is an mm. improv kind of mantra, that we're just going to say yes to ideas and if it goes really, really bad, I'll stop the show <laughs> and go, oh, we're going to cut the scene. And, you know, that, that kind of controversy and mischief is really, really good. But it's great that these guys have eye contact, they're listening mm. to each other the whole time and just supporting each other. So it's, it's, it's pure collaboration. Mm. Yeah. The fun part is if you've pitched a song in the first half and you, your musical's got through, that, you know, you've got to replicate that song in the actual musical, uh, which is always interesting <laughs> if you've pitched something that's sort of rather wordy. Um, that's, that's the fun part. The audience love that, seeing if you can uh, bring yeah. bring back that uh, that number you did at the first half. So you need a killer memory. Uh, yeah, it's a rare yes. skill. Yeah. Yes, or to be able to just, just sort of sell it. nod and, and pretend. That this you know is the doing. same, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and John has to play the same bed of music yeah. as well. Yeah. She knows sometimes actually the younger members of the cast are better remembering those sort of things than the older members. <laughs> Hence my medication, John. <laughs> Thank you. Hence me saying Sam Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and John, um, being the, the pianist and also a driving force behind this, and, I mean, why did you pick up this format and, and really want to um, push it in Australia and, and why has it been so successful, do you think? Um, it's a little bit of a long story. I was doing theatre sports actually with Russell back from 1986 and in well, about it was 1886, 1886 wasn't it? when theatre sports was going gang the arts centre and um, we played you know, to a full playhouse theatre every Sunday and occasionally we do full Hamer halls for the finals mm. and um, there was a little bit of music on but then one week um, a friend of mine Jane Tanker came along and she's a professional singer and she got up and sang a song and the crowd just went ballistic and I thought oh there's something here if the mm. people want to hear that sort of stuff and so I looked around for a format we actually tried a format at a comedy festival. Uh, called It's a Mad, Mad World. Oh, no, it's a, no, it's yeah, a mad, right. mad, mad, mad world, um, which was sort of half improvised, half half um, composed. And But that didn't sort of work. And then it was only when I think I was in Vegas. Were you in Vegas with me? No. No, no. But I was. I, I did a gig in Vegas, stopped by San Francisco. Look um, out. And, um, 
uh, we just sort of sat in at the theatre sports there and this guy said, oh, I think you like this format. And so that was the spontaneous Broy format. And um, he only gave it to me for about 30 seconds. I said, don't tell me any more. I've got the idea that I want now. And, um, yeah, I've been, I've been looking for a format for a while. So it originally was formed in um, New York, but we've kind of made it our own. It's, it's very different to the way they do it in, in America now. So, And since 2000, we've been doing it. Wow. And we're in 2018. And it's, it's still... The gift that keeps giving. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Never gets old because, as you said, it's brand it's new. new every single yeah. show. Yeah. Um, we are... Well, we do have some time for one more song and I thought maybe oh. if you are able and have the energy, we could uh, spontaneously end the show on a high. Lo- lo- <laughs> lovely. And it's real. I'm looking at Autumn and Baroness and they, they've found some real gold <laughs> from our audience suggestions. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, dear listeners, for your wonderful suggestions. Uh, and they're going to tell you about a musical right now <laughs> which should get no see pressure. the light of day uh, and will attract crowdfunding. Get this, on it, this, young this, people. This is, a, this is a musical about something that everybody loves, the, uh, the, the Brownlow Medal. <gasps> the, um, the, the Brownlow Medal. And what's more important than getting a medal for achieving some sporting prowess than looking at what your girlfriend's wearing. That's right. You know? It's all about the wags. It's all about the wags because, let's face it, listening to people reading out numbers for 15 hours can't be that exciting. Oh, the accountants so love The it. lower cut the dress, the more fun everyone's going to have. What's the title of the musical, the Baroness? The title of the musical. Well, we, I wrote it with Autumn and um, Autumn will tell you the title. Oh, yes. Um, I would love to tell you the title of the Brownlow musical, which I know a great deal about. Uh, the title of this musical is The Brown Lowdown. <laughs> as long as you didn't say low brown. Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, and it's oh, it's all about sports, but also humanity um, and friendship. It's and about the sport. It's about the sport of um, outdressing other women in a, in, as well. Um, so it's sort of there's a, there's the men's side of it, which is about you know physical prowess, and the women's side of it, which is about sort of physical prowess. Physical prowess. <laughs> physical prowess. Um, so many layers. You know, it's um, very powerful, though, because all the wags join together in uh, the end and they take a stand and nice. they just all start wearing the same dress oh, to the brown lows so yes. that they can talk about other stuff, like yes. um, their important um, the theses and, and they charity have, they, work. They have brains, and once everyone finds out they have brains, the whole thing possibly collapses mm. into what's a this, heap. What's the style of this particular uh, oh, song the style of this in song, the brown low lowdown? Uh, brown low down. Oh, I would say it is a... Jazz, jazz walk. 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 Jazz walk. Jazz walk. It's a jazz yeah, walk. Yeah, you know jazz walk, John. That's I a style jazz that walk, exists. Actually. And this song sung between uh, two of the top wags. Top, top, top wags. Of course, you know, there's the pregnant wag because they always have to be there and there's the wag with the uh, excessive amount of tit tape. Can we say that on the radio? <laughs> Great. Tit tape. I said it out loud. Anyway, this is sung between my character, Cable, and um, Gillian's character... Oh, Autumn, my name is Autumn. Oh, sorry, Autumn. Sorry, I, I don't know what happened to me there. See, it's the brain cells. I'm over the age of 40. Can't remember a thing. And uh, uh, and 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 Autumn's uh, character, Foam. Cable, Foam. Cable and Foam sing a song about... This is in the first half of the musical uh, when they're getting frocked up, um, hoping to get, you know, on the... Wasn't there a time on the Brownlows where they put women on, a, like, a lazy Susan? Oh, yes. And they... And they and they, and they, they did. They, they, put them on a, they put them on a lazy yeah, Susan and they... And they rotated them so you could see a full view. Oh, the feminist in me loved that moment. Anyway, so this song is from the musical... Um, the Brownlow Lowdown. Brownlow Down. Brownlow Lowdown. And it's called Leather, Silk and Diamonds. 
Should have seen the dancing here, ladies and gentlemen. It's very impressive. Brownlows eat your heart out. <laughs> I like that. Tip tape is very alliterative. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oh. Has a ring to it, certainly. <laughs> very oh, no, that's song. another kind of tape. Oh. Terribly sorry, ladies and gentlemen. What radio station is this? <laughs> I think it's Triple R, ah. so R rated. Uh, triple yeah. R rated. Three times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we but should be more is... offensive. <laughs> This is a family show, though. You can bring uh, the kids to this show, can't you, Russell? We do have matinees and we've had to moderate some of the uh, content uh, (laughs) in the matinees. Yeah, we've got matinees starting this uh, Saturday, April the 7th, the booking out. So if uh, people want to bring their young folk along, we've had 10-year-olds in the the audience this week, but uh, we are on at 9.30 generally during the week, 8.30 on Sundays, but the matinees are at 5.30 and 4.30 on Sundays. Great. Well, that's good to know. So anyone needing to, wanting to entertain their kids, go to the matinees. And anyone wanting to escape their kids, go to the evening shows. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or anyone just, drop, it, or kids, just drop your kids well off done. at the <laughs> matinees. We'll look after them. Yeah, it's also a creche. Yes. <laughs> Training the next generation of improvisers. That, with Autumn, with her Wiggles background, you That's know, they true. are just like... No, I'm know. not legally allowed to look after children. <laughs> <laughs> the permit has expired. Oh. I love it. Thank you, guys. It's oh, been amazing to have you all. Uh, John Thorne on the keys. Thank you, Amy. And we have uh, Gillian Cosgriff, Sally Bourne singing and improvising. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Russell Fre- Fletcher, MCing. Nice to see you, Amy. Thank you. You too. Thank it's been you. amazing. So much fun as always. I can't wait to head along. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's called Spontaneous Broadway. It is an improvised musical show. 
and uh, it runs at Trades Hall from March 29 to April 22 and you can buy your tickets at comedyfestival.com.au. Can I just say we've got a two-for-one deal and it is Tight Ass Tuesday tonight, 25 bucks only tonight. Uh, we also really need to tell the audience about uh, Jill's other show, which is on during the Comedy oh, Festival. Oh, yeah, I'm doing my solo <laughs> show. <laughs> I know, I forgot. Um, I'm doing uh, my solo show. It's called So Far, So Good. Uh, it's super fun. It's musical comedy. If you like kind of uh, to mention a tripod, that kind of vibe, that's what I do. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, uh, come along. It's really fun. It's 7.15 at the Town Hall every night until uh, the 22nd. It's also only $20 tonight, so treat yourself. Oh, yes. One lobster. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and it's good to mention that, Gillian, you've had an amazing career doing comedy shows across the world as well. So you're both Sally and Gillian, really accomplished uh, comedians and singers in your own right. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. I'll take that. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is an all-star cast, as we've said, so do head on down and see Spontaneous Broadway. And uh, thank you, guys. Hope you have a great season. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. Thanks, Amy. As I said, that was John Thorne, Russell Fletcher, Gillian Cosgrove and Sally Bourne, who are some of the amazing cast who are part of Spontaneous Broadway, uh, which is an improvised musicals and it's all about uh, audience participation. So uh, certainly when you arrive, you can write down any song title that comes to your mind, an original song, and it could be played up on the stage in front of you. Uh, So do head on down. It's certainly one of my favourites on the calendar. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. It's uh, Amy Mullins here. I've been with you for the last three hours. It's been a really fun time to be with you. And uh, I want to thank the guests that I've had today. Uh, I've got uh, Ben Altham, who was up first about federal politics, Claire Ray and Gareth Sivray, uh, who came in to talk about their exhibition at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy, which is called Entre Nous, Claude Cahoon and Claire Ray. Then we had a chat with Matt Ruckel, uh, who is the executive director of the Victorian National Parks Association. We talked about the regional forest agreements in Victoria uh, that they're being reviewed and in some cases extended. And then finally, obviously, we had in here part of the cast from Spontaneous Broadway. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.